Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Good Tech Fest podcast. My name is Andrew Means. I am the founder of Good Tech Fest, a global community of data scientists, technologists, product people, philanthropists, do-gooders of all kinds, seeking to use data and technology in responsible ways to drive impact. I'm really excited for today's conversation with Mari Qureshi. Uh, She is the founder of Global Giving and just such an insightful technologist uh, and and advocate for technology in the social impact sector. I cannot wait for my conversation with her, but first, let's hear just a quick word from our sponsors. This season of the Good Tech Fest podcast is sponsored by Okta. More than 13,000 organizations around the world trust Okta to secure the connections between people and technology. For example, many listeners know that Teach for America is a nonprofit working to ensure that all children in the United States have access to excellent education. But what you probably don't know is that a few years ago, they began moving their entire tech infrastructure to the cloud. After almost 30 years in operation, TFA's community included more than 60,000 staff, core members, and alumni who needed secure, reliable, and remote access to a huge variety of applications. Teach for America decided to implement Okta's workforce identity products, including single sign-on, adaptive multi-factor authentication, lifecycle management, and universal directory. The result is that TFA's community can continue to grow seamlessly and securely. Whether you work for one of the world's most recognized brands or for a small but mighty nonprofit, Okta helps anyone to safely use any technology. Learn more at okta.com. That's O-K-T-A.com. Mari, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate the time. Pleased to be here, Andrew. So Mari, could you just begin by sharing a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, what you've done and, and what you're up to now? Sure. So my name's Mari Qureshi. I currently lead the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, a private foundation based in Jacksonville, Florida, focused on placemaking and equity. Before that, I co-founded and ran a crowdfunding platform for nonprofits and uh, did that for 17, 18 years. And before that, I was a, uh, I was a manager of strategy and business innovation at the World Bank. And that was preceded by working in Russia during the reforms from about 1991 onwards. Hmm. Awesome. I'd love to, to dive into the conversation and learn a little bit about what motivated you to start Global Giving um, and what it was like kind of in the early days of, of Global Giving, getting a technology crowdfunding platform off the ground, um, you know, in the you know, early-ish 2000s. Yes. So if, you know, if your listeners are old enough, 2000 was the first (laughs) dot-com boom, uh, which is to say it was the first sort of flush of people thinking, ooh, there's this, this internet thing. It might actually be revolutionary. And in, in true sort of revolutionary spirit, everything was getting funded. And in, in a sort of bubble atmosphere of literally people were sketching things out on napkins and venture capitalists were funding them on the basis of those napkins. Um, We were, were, my co-founder and I, uh, Dennis Whittle, uh, were at the World Bank at the time 
deeply engaged in international development, had you know sort of done a little uh, thing inside the World Bank trying to get the World Bank to innovate, which is a which is a very different proposition than sort of writing the dot com boom. Um, but that attempt to innovate the in within the World Bank kind of showed us the power of technology because it allowed us to reach out to a far, the technology allowed us to reach out to a far greater uh, world than the, the existing stakeholder group of the World Bank. So that's when we said, surely this is going to start connecting grassroots community leaders and social entrepreneurs with donors in this incredibly generous country we should just create a platform. And the thing about the dot-com boom is again, everything was getting funded and there was no understanding of the fact that if you build it, they don't usually come. Because of <laughs> course we were talking to eBay and Pierre Amidiar and he was one of the few people who built it and people came. So he was like, sure. I mean, this is the eBay of philanthropy. I mean, he, he said that and we're like, yes, it is the eBay of philanthropy. Um, and that tells you a little bit also about what, what the, the star brands were in the context of the dot-com boom. It was Yahoo, it was eBay. Google didn't really exist at the time. You know, Facebook was not even conceived of. And people were barely transacting online. So the, the notion we had that we could connect social entrepreneurs in the in the world to donors was truly far-fetched. I mean, in retrospect, it was way too early. <laughs> but, you know, we, we left the World Bank, started Global Giving. There were several lean years where we didn't pay ourselves. And uh, we, you know, charged a lot of things on credit cards. And we ended up getting significant philanthropic support in, in about year three or so, and it allowed us to create what is global giving today. But it preceded social media, it preceded a lot of things. So we ended up having to evolve very significantly over time. What we conceived of at the beginning is nothing really as, it, it bears little resemblance to what global giving is today, except for the fact that we reach thousands of organizations and individuals and you know, hundreds of thousands of donors. That is still in place. So for those that might be less familiar, what, what does global giving look like today? How has it evolved from those early years? Well, it is a, you know, the early years we thought we needed to like train people to write business plans. <laughs> Turns out donors don't really want to read business plans. <laughs> I mean, business plans are good. Don't get me wrong. It's they're important documents to help you like systematize your thinking and make sure you're thinking about all these things, but not relevant for donors. We didn't know that. So yeah. we made them go through this process. Um, we find other ways of validating the legitimacy and the effectiveness of nonprofits, but that's all in the background now. 
So when you show up to globalgiving.org as a browser or a potential donor, what you see are incredibly compelling narratives and photographs of the things that are going on in you know, far-flung parts of the globe. And we understand that a donor is there you know, because somebody told them about it or because they saw something on social media that caught their attention and they want to very quickly get an assurance that this is legit, that this is doing good work and they can do their transaction with as little friction as possible. That is not the way we thought about things back in 2001. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts zooming out from just kind of the global giving context, but, but this, um, but start to have a conversation around the growth of technology in the nonprofit sector mm -hmm. in general over the yeah. last 20 years. Um, how have you seen things change from like those early days when you were innovating and, and creating global giving to what we see today, which is, I think in many ways, a much more robust use of technology in the nonprofit sector. What have been some of the big you know, shifts and changes that you've seen um, just kind of sector-wide over the last 20 years. Yeah, so sector-wide, of course, at the time when we started Global Giving, the vast majority of nonprofits, if they had a presence online, it was brochureware. It was not um, transaction-oriented. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, there's just been an ev evolution, right? You, you decide, well, maybe you should be online because someone might try to figure out if you exist and there's that and remember you know guidestar started in the mid 1990s digitizing 990s that were being transmitted to the irs on paper and again buzz schmidt was trying to say look, nonprofits, you have to exist online and I am going to help you do it by digitizing these 990s, whether you are aware of that or not. <laughs> um, and it still remains a sort of key uh, utility, right? Mm -hmm. um, so going from, yes, I exist and some vague sort of brochure where to, oh, maybe people might want to give online. That's transactional. But at the Today, you know, the, the best nonprofits are leveraging their virtual existence into, you know, something that conveys a, a multitude of things, you know, their, their legitimacy, their, the depth of their experience, the compelling nature of their mission, you know, it, the, the best nonprofits convey effectively what difference they are making to people's lives. And, you know, they've, they've sort of internalized the lesson of the Darfur puppy, right? I don't know if you remember the story of the Darfur mm -hmm. puppy, but people do not react to statistics about, you know, the, the ways in which people are suffering or the ways in which people are being helped. They react to very specific stories about how a family, an individual, with specific details of exactly what they went through and how the organization that you are looking at helped them. 
that's sort of and and in that process it may also you know sort of throw in a transaction including sign up for our newsletters you know share this content to give us some money right but it is embedded within uh, a, a virtual experience and you know looking forward you can imagine that you will have an opportunity to step into a virtual reality that truly conveys what it means to show up as a refugee in a refugee camp like that experience is going to be way more compelling than even a you know narrative yeah what, what are some of the things that excite you as you look forward um, what are the trends that you think you, that we're starting to see um, in the kind of use of technology for fundraising, for programmatic delivery? Um, yeah, what, what are you thinking about? What excites you right now? Well, you know, sort of pivoting away from the UA virtual reality and the whole bit, I think the, the power of platforms to enable greater transparency and collaboration is as yet un, untapped, right? Just to give a, uh, what, what may seem like an abstruse example, I run a private foundation here. We have online ways for people to apply. We only accept applications online. But in you know typical funder fashion, we ask you to fill out a lot of information, right? Well, 70% uh, of the information we ask for is actually the same information that you might provide to uh, the Guy Star Exchange, which is now part of Candid. Yeah. Yep. There is truly no reason for us to make that organization fill that information in. There are APIs available from Candid that would allow us to seamlessly get that information. And that information on Candid is going to do that organization far more good than information they've put into our grant application software, which we can't easily share with the rest of the world. Um, and so, you know, we need to be making the effort to have this all seamlessly happen. If we were in a sort of for-profit competitive context, we would be doing everything we can to minimize friction for our grantees. Instead, we have to kind of think about it and say, oh, you know what, it, it probably would be good because if we minimize friction for our grantees, they might have more time to spend thinking about the work they are doing on the ground. I mean, it is truly on us to, to figure that sort of thing out, but it, it takes work and it takes you know deep infrastructure the infrastructure represented by organizations like Candid, but even Global Gaming, is immense. There's there's depth of investment there that a private foundation that isn't necessarily sort of digital first needs to leverage. And if we did all of that, we would also make it easier for our grantees to say benchmark to each other. Mm -hmm which in mm -hmm. turn would allow us to sort of stop wagging our finger and say, well, have you thought about board diversity recently? When all that data is on Candid, they can immediately see how they compare on a metric like say board diversity. We don't have to be sitting there saying, have you thought about this? We can just show it to them on their dashboard. 
yeah like all of those things there is so much we can move on to platforms if we just rethink the whole process yeah so this is this is i think such an important point because i 100 agree with you and I'd, I'd love to see more platforms come into existence that are supporting this kind of information sharing how do we incentivize those platforms to come into existence how do we fund their scale and growth i think that's some of the challenges that i've seen um is is really like how do we drive capital to some of those initiatives to help them blossom in this kind of um in this sector in this particular sector that has resource constraints that has weird incentives that has all of these kinds of challenges and um, what are some ways that you would like to see uh yeah us, us incentivize the development and creation of some of those platforms yeah so you know when when i was running global gaming it was clear that there were some funders who were deeply engaged in that work right in 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 that time it was organizations like Amidiar. It, it it was sort of the, the the philanthropy infrastructure funders group right uh gates foundation uh kellogg uh hewlett and i'm you know leaving other funders out but so those organizations have developed over time a deep knowledge of the existing infrastructure players, the strengths and weaknesses of those, and have a shot at assessing the viability and or the potential of up and coming new ones. But I also remember as you know, I went around fundraising, people would, the funders in turn would be like, gosh, I just don't have that much money for this work. And there's so many coming up. I, I feel like I'm distributing it way too thin and that nobody is has a shot at like actually growing and scaling to your point that it does kind of put them in a dilemma it we the the for-profit sector funds key infrastructure things because notwithstanding the fact that they're not visible brands for the public they make money so makes sense to fund you know sort of a deep infrastructure place how do you kind of and then you know switching hats and as as a funder right when i bring grants to trustees i have to make sure that i can explain why mm. this is important and you know funders typically have trustees that are not necessarily in that sector in that world and they're yeah. like, yeah, okay. And you know, some of it they'll let you just do it because of, but on the strength of your own expertise. But at a certain point, they sort of get like, well, what am I doing on this board? And you know, am I really adding value? You start yeah. getting into this disconnect where you're like, not, not, not meeting the needs of the, <laughs> the and and the uh, of all the stakeholders here it's it's a tough one it's it's not easy to make the case it's not easy to pick winners uh it is not easy to figure out a viable business model because these infrastructure plays can't rely on compelling narratives you know forget vr <laughs> there is no vr uh, mm -hmm. option in an infrastructure play 
they have to do it on the strength of really it's good for the sector. Yeah, I think that's so that's such an important point. And and um, you know, one of the things I've often thought about is that a lot of funders, I think, are set up to fund kind of like linear initiatives, right? Where it's like, I'll give you a marginal, you know, million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars to serve X number of more people. Yeah. Um, whereas like technology development kind of requires like a very different funding. It's a non-linear kind of like funding. Um, yeah. to reach scale, right? There's points where you need like massive infusions of, of cash to develop yes. and capture some of that market share. And we're just not very well set up, it seems like, to, to do that, that kind of even funding life cycle um, yes. for, for these kind of like platform and technology initiatives. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the equivalent of, you know, the private equity J-curve, right? Where you're funding, mm -hmm. funding, funding and not seeing a whole lot coming back. But year seven, year 13, you're beginning to see the returns, but only if you have put in the money to capture some of the network effects. You, you cannot get the network effects if you aren't steadily putting in the infrastructure uh, base to, to set the organization up in such a way that it truly is almost zero marginal cost to bring on that next customer right and you have to design it very differently than an enterprise where it costs you a set amount to bring on every customer exactly no i think that that's that's absolutely right on um what yeah what are some of the the pieces of parting wisdom that you might give to folks that are out there listening to uh, to this and and starting their their new you know tech nonprofit or a large initiative within their organization or trying to create that kind of infrastructure platform, um, you know what what kind of wisdom would you pass down to those that are out there trying to innovate today on on some of these emerging technologies and opportunities? I think the one thing I would say is that even if you have a very nerdy kind of middleware idea, that is you know, in the beginning, you might be the only person in the world who sees that potential, right? That after a certain point, you've gathered a little tribe around you and they're all convinced and you've maybe even got board members who are like behind you. You must, must connect it to the difference that it makes in the world, right? At the end of the day, it was so important at Global Giving to be able to say, and because of this, this kid gets a shot at achieving their potential in the world, or this person who has worked so hard against structural injustice and you know poverty has a chance to not have to struggle as much as they have done for all their lives. If you can't translate it all the way down to that difference in somebody's life or that difference in you know nature that difference in you know animals right you know biodiversity whatever you've got to take it to that otherwise it's a slog i think that is such a great advice i i remember when we started bright hive we were like this very nerdy middleware of like data sharing technology and data governance and all of this. 
And um, I mean, we, we would lose people so quickly when we would dive into all of that, but, <laughs> but it was about like bringing it back. Like we're helping drive like better educational opportunities for folks. And this is some of those stories and labor opportunities. And um, I think it's such, such a valuable advice uh, that I wish I had known, you know, a few years ago. Uh, when we were when we were getting our nerdy middleware company off the ground, yeah, it's it's a sort of hard won lesson. <laughs> Absolutely, Mari, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I really appreciate uh, getting to hear a little bit more of your story and share that with everybody. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. I want to give a huge thank you to Mari for joining me for today's conversation and to all of you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the Good Tech Fest podcast and join me next week when I sit down for a conversation with Greg Baldwin, the founder of Volunteer Match.